Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Difference Maker Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Calderoni, and today we've got an awesome guest on board, Miss Jenny True, who's taken you know some awesome time out of her schedule right now to, to speak with us and share her story. So, Jenny, welcome on the show, and thanks so much for, for being on. Oh, thanks for having me, Matt. I'm pretty excited to be here. Awesome. So we'll dive right into it. I mean, like, you know, talking with you, Jenny, what we were discussing beforehand and why we kind of reached out, you know, you've had some amazing accomplishments in regards to what you've done in the cycling world, but it's, it's very intriguing. Like we were talking before this, and we were saying for anybody that's tuning in, um, I was inspired by that Netflix documentary, documentary, sorry, Icarus, where I just saw the craziness that went on behind the scenes of just all athletic competition in some way shape or form and you know it's just it was something that led us down a bit of a rabbit hole where we were getting very interested in the sport of cycling and just understanding really you know the mindset behind it and and the gruelingness that goes into it because you know we see it a lot of the time too right like endurance athletes are completely different animals obviously than more explosive based athletes if you will um in in that sense so I mean it's something that's really really interesting that we're going to open up here on today really get some viewpoint on and perspective. So Jenny, this is awesome, but why don't you start by sharing with our audience, you know, a little bit about yourself, how you got into the cycling world, where it all started with you and and where you're at now. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I got into cycling through triathlon, which is a pretty, pretty normal story um, in that cycling can be a very strange sport to get into. (laughs) Um, especially being in Ontario and Canada right like we know in in Europe it's super super common um but it's it's less frequent we'll say here in in North America yeah and I would say now more so you know we 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 had we've had a lot of success um with things like triathlon and and so you see kids of steel and and people know what it is as a sport and I think that's led to a lot of popularity in cycling but um, 20 years ago, there, that was less the case. Um, so I just, I got into it through, uh, through triathlon. I was really bad at the cycling portion. We got, my coach and I sat down and we were like, okay, so you, you used to be a swimmer. You can get out of the water pretty good. Your running's okay. It's probably not going to get that much better, but your bike riding is really bad. <laughs> oh my um, God. Yeah. So we did a bit of that and uh, I you know, one, one thing led to another, I got a bike that wasn't my mom's 1983 down tube shifting, like (laughs) classic, if you will, um, and started to love it. And, and yeah, endurance sport is so interesting that way, because it is so much a a sport of time. So if you love being on your bike, you, uh, you will get better. And for me, that was it. I loved the competition of swimming, but I was never it was never really something that I loved intrinsically, whereas I love bike riding. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I did that for about 12 years. Um, got, got to do a bunch of different cool things. Um, some on the track, some on the road, raced in Europe with the national team. Amazing. Um, yeah, it was, uh, it was really cool. Um, had, had a really great year uh, and then uh, had a couple of injuries and uh, was ultimately sidelined by a concussion. Oh. Um, about ten years ago, before we knew what concussions could really do, it was it was shortly after Sidney Crosby um, yeah. got sidelined. So it was actually really good in that I had somebody to to kind of gauge things off of, but it was yeah. really poorly managed. Yeah. Um, but I had really great people in my life uh, who identified that I had some talent in coaching and got some opportunities through that and it's it's it was right around this time of year so it's been really interesting because you know good old Facebook pops up those memories it was uh, 10 years ago uh last week and shining those triggers on everything right that's right that's right (laughs) but it you know and it's really interesting that you know it's that first initial kind of oh my goodness everything's going to change and then a couple years later being like yeah that was that was crap (laughs) but uh (laughs) but it's brought me to this place in my life where I'm way better. And I think ultimately I'm a much better coach than I ever was athlete. Um, And it still lets me do the amazing parts of the sport that I love and share that with people. And so I've been building uh, my coaching career for the last 10 years, uh, first more on the road. And then for the last three and a half years with the Canadian national team as the development track coach. So awesome. That's super. I want to, I want to backpedal for a second here. Um, 
the mindset of a triathlete, please enlighten us. Cause I'm going to tell you something like it's, it's interesting where, you know, we've got the different individuals we work with from football um, on the American side and even, you know, European football as well, hockey, baseball, basketball, so on. But it's a completely different mindset when we're talking about, you know, even just endurance-based sports, but triathletes are a, just an animal in itself. So give us like, shine some light on that. I mean, it's grueling, let's be real, but teach us a bit about that. Like where, where did the love of the whole triathlete side come in? Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I didn't spend a lot of time there. Um, I, I was a swimmer growing up as a swimmer and I mean, grew up through, through the nineties as a swimmer. So the no pain, no gain was <laughs> fully the, uh, I believe I had a shirt that said no gain or no pain, no gain, no Spain. And that kind of <laughs> stuck with me. Um, I would say that was probably a, a, like a level of mentality that I actually had to shake later on through my cycling career. Cause that was, uh, it was a uh, like, no, we need to be smart about this. We don't just need to hammer all the time. Um, so yeah, I think endurance athletes are very individual. They, they can spend a ton of time um, out by themselves. Uh, one of the real interesting things is in, we do have crossovers from long distance running from triathlon into cycling. And one of the really strange things about cycling is it's an individual sport that's practiced in a team environment um, and is raced in a team environment. So you need to be able to function in a team. And that's not always the case when you have these incredibly like tough human beings who are really used to just being out there by themselves and being very much in their own head. <laughs> it's, interesting. So, it's so interesting you say that because like the relatable almost, almost, and obviously it's a completely different animal in itself, but like, it's kind of like the formula one racers, right? Where you're on a team together, but you're actually competing with each other kind of thing. And yeah. it's, it's tough, right? Like it really takes on the mentality of get selfish to be selfless. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, it's pretty unreal. So tell me a bit about that then, like the whole no pain, no gain. I want to play some or spend some time there for a second. Did that lead to potential injuries? Like later on, you mentioned injuries in your career. Um, was that something that maybe led to it? Like an overtraining? Like, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I definitely had a period of overtraining. For me, I would say it was probably more under recovery. One of the really interesting things about bike racing is that we put the pinnacle on things like the Tour de France. So you're talking about 21 days for the guys. They get two rest days over three weeks. It's insane. Like they're on their bikes for six hours a day. Um, for the women, it's not quite, it's not quite that extreme. Um, the, I, I got to do the Tour de Lode, which is in the Pyrenees in yep. the south of France. I am not a mountain climber. That is not <laughs> where my my happiness lies. Um, I was I was a field sprinter. So uh, for me, the the beginning of the under recovery started probably earlier that year, but really came uh, to a head uh, when I was in Europe. We did ten days. Those ten days were some of the hardest ten days I've ever had on my bicycle. Um, it was, it was crazy. We'd be out there for three, three, three and a half hours every day. Um, some of it was so hard. I remember finishing stages and being like, okay, now I can eat all the food that I've been carrying around for the last three and a half hours. Cause I couldn't take my hands <laughs> off the bars. Um, <laughs> so head, right? yeah, no, it's, it was nuts. And, and so we, I did those 10 days. I flew back to North America. I had most of a week off did a five days or five stage, four day stage race in Montreal, two days off and another five days, five stages. So it was 20 days of racing in 26 days or something like that. Um, oh. And I won the last day, which was actually my career highlight right there and <laughs> could not get off the couch um, for the next 10 days. It was, it was pretty special. Actually. Hey, never mind. That's actually something that I heard is real in the cycling community, right? Like where you belted out in something like that like a, a heavy race like that and then all of a sudden you're not able to get off the couch for the next like 10 days kind of thing like that's a real thing right yeah it was it was it was nuts like I, yeah and well, like, let me yeah. ask you then like what drives an individual to do that like i'm not trying to be rude but no what um, like, like what was it uh there, there's there's a lot of fantasy in in the european peloton so that was the biggest race at the time and it was always my dream to get to do it um and and it's that it's that element of people are saying i can't do it yeah i can do this i'm here i'm here to finish and um 
I'm not really going to think about anything in the interim. And one of the things with stage racing is if you don't finish the day, you don't get to start the next day. So there is some, some real like push there to do that, but it's also, I mean, it's funny. I, I joke around with athletes that you're like, so what's your, what's your career goal? And they're always like, well, I'd like to fulfill my potential, which I think is a bit of a pop out if I'm entirely honest. Um, But I think there's a little bit of that too. Like, you're like, how far can I push myself? Like, where, where can we take this to? Um, Yeah. And the answer is sometimes it's not a good place. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Well, let's look at a couple of things there. So there's, there's one thing we're going to get back to is, is the whole cop outside because there's an evident reason that you've obviously become a coach now. And I want to explore that side in a bit here, but the doubter side, um, did you have a lot of people that kind of went against that? Like was, you know, being a cyclist, maybe not so much in the cards of your family's last name? Like what, what went on there? Uh, I mean, no, I'm, I, I come from a very supportive place. Um, as I said, I'm not really, I, I was more of a field sprinter. So there, there was always an element of why are you going to ride those mountains? What are, <laughs> what are you trying to do? Um, I think a lot of us project our insecurities on other people so if you're like I'm not sure I can do this it's not I'm not sure I can do this it's they think I don't I can't do it um and it's easy to it's easier to project it on other people than realize where you're coming from um yeah I was gonna say there it's funny you say that sorry but like you know we see this all the time with athletes too where mom and dad or you know people in their in the culture of the sport let's say have an issue with that transition and it's almost like you're curious or wondering to know like you know are people just saying this because they're actually worried I might do something novel and break through here like what's the deal with that you know yeah and it's it's an interesting one there especially with the sport of cycling I've noticed too and you know we look at the tra- more traditional sports where it is a hockey player basketball football baseball and it's it's not as open, I would say, to move into sport kind of thing. Like you usually have a couple positions. Genetically, you're better for one than the other and you stick with it, right? Versus cycling where it's kind of like you're saying, like it's not uncommon to see an endurance athlete jump from sport to sport, right? It's a, it's a real thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a couple of reasons there. One, in Canada, we just don't have the depth. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, you're talking hockey, like, yeah, good luck. You start when you're <laughs> three and maybe you're starting late. Um, and if you don't have those skills, it's hard for people to see that. Whereas uh, in cycling, we, we do, we just don't have that depth. And then the other side is, as I said, part of it's just endurance. And when you're talking power-based sports, it's different. Uh, <laughs> there is, there's more genetics. It's sometimes trainable skills are, you know, developed but like we've got a six-year-old on our street who I'm like well if I've ever met a kid at six who I think is going to be a professional athlete he's it so we'll see how she goes right whereas endurance is you just got to get her done and some people are more gifted for sure but you can always get better at endurance whereas the 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 more poppy the more anaerobic stuff is harder yeah, hundred percent. And I was going to ask for that. It's, it's funny you say that, but this whole, like, I'm intrigued, like the path to pro of being a cyclist, like it's obviously not as cut and dry. I mean, I kind of have an idea of how it can be a little different being from a soccer background to someone from North America that wanted to get to Europe. I mean, we had to go make a lot of our own connections, right? Call the uncle in Italy who knew this team coach who then knew this owner who was able to get us over on a flight. Like it's, it's not as clear where I think it's a little bit more developed now, but I'm curious, and I'm sure a lot of people tuning in are too, like, what's the path to pro for cycling? Yeah, well, I think you, you hit the nail on the head on that one. It's very similar um, yeah. in that uh, in North America, uh, we, we have some good, uh, good professional teams, but they're, they're just a different level than, than their European counterparts. So our, our top Canadians tend to get opportunities through North American teams. We have a, a very good national team structure that has at different times a, allowed exposure over in Europe without complete immersion. Yeah. Um, and I think that's been the real ticket. And then eventually when the, the athletes get to a certain level, they're able to transition full time over there. But uh, there is there is the culture difference. There's uh, just generally speaking, most of the Europeans have been racing bikes since they were 10. So then you have this catch up phase. And if we just throw kids over there, it's really tough. So 
our if we kind of our our top male world racer right now is Mike, uh, Mike Woods. Yep. And he was a collegiate runner. Um, wow. The Canadian, I think, uh, probably shouldn't have started this because I'm not positive <laughs> I can back it up. Uh, okay. He <laughs> held a Canadian record for the mile, um, wow. and and got injured uh, while he was running at Michigan State, and so he took up cycling kind of later on when he was in his mid twenties bounced around North American teams, one European team came back to North America. He's now uh, phenomenal, got, got third in the world a wow. few years ago, right? Like, and he's, he's at the top now. So for him, again, it's that bouncing between the two places. Um, our two top women right now, they had a lot of exposure in North America, got some over in Europe and are now fully based over in Europe. So it's, um, it, it is kind of like bouncing between the two. I personally believe that there's a lot that you can learn here in North America, a lot of growing up that has to happen so that you can develop all those habits yeah. that make you a champion. And then when you get those opportunities uh, over in Europe, that you really make the most of those opportunities. And how that looks is kind of different, but it it's often, yeah, in those kind of four to six week exposures then you can get some results, come back, relax, catch your breath again and do it again. I can imagine. Right. And it's like, it's great. Like the whole travel aspect to, of the sport, it's grueling in itself because you're going and you're touring in different cities. Not to say that, you know, the typical hockey, soccer, baseball, like there's travel there too, but it's like, you're going to different cities to do <laughs> absurd hours of training and, and working right and it's like it's funny you say that about the endurance side of sport and how it's kind of like just get it done because there's a great book by um i believe it was that alex hutchinson there that he wrote i forget the exact title um but it was all talking about like he did a very nice job i gotta i gotta put the title in the description after but a nice job of outlining like i guess we can call it the mechanics behind the psychological side of endurance sport and it's like hey We've done the studies. We understand it. The sprinting side of the sport often is mental, mentally driven, if you will. Whereas the endurance part is like, it's less mental and a lot more mechanical. And you got to look at it, right? Where it's like a lot of people will come up to us, especially in the endurance side that we do work with. And they'll say, well, how do I get my mind wrapped around X, Y, and Z? And it's like, it's actually not getting your mind wrapped around it. It's more so understanding the mechanics behind it, right? Where it's like, endurance-based sport is a lot more understanding that kind of, like you said, it's just get it done. Sometimes it's going to be ugly and that's part of it. Whereas, you know, you've got explosive sports, we've got a couple of we work with and they're extremely technical to a point that it's like, okay, visualize the technique right down to it. And it's, it's tough, man. But I mean, like looking at it for you guys, the mental toughness, I think more so, and we see this a lot in the endurance side is like almost in between if I'm not mistaken, but the training sessions and the races, right. Where it's like, Hey, I've got to go do this extremely long based trail. Now it's going to take me, I don't know, more than a couple hours. And I've got to literally accept the fact that I'm going to be sore after not able to walk. And this is what it is. Um, shed some light on that because then we'll get into the coaching after, but like, how is that whole process or was it for you when you were going through it yourself? Yeah, absolutely. There, uh, there is just that sentiment of there are days that you just got to go out there and there's all this feedback telling you not to do it. And you're like, well, I just got to get her done. Um, I, I had a coach at one point who used to prescribe weeks and then about six months into our coaching relationship said to me, you actually do everything I tell you to do. I was like, well, yeah, cause it's written there. I do it. And he was like, oh, Okay. Wow. <laughs> um, and I can tell you, it, it does actually segue really nice into the, nicely into the coaching because I, I've told a few athletes that I work with that the ones that just do what you tell them to do are almost some of the scariest. You're like, yeah. I don't, I don't know exactly how you're feeling just because I put it there. doesn't mean, um, and I do remember having an argument with one of my other coaches um, at one point because I, we made it to like Thursday and he looked at me and he was like, yeah, you're not doing this workout. <laughs> what do you mean? You had it in there. And he was like, Jenny, listen, man, oh, like it's, I put it in there. I can take it away. Like there's <laughs> nothing that makes it like, 
And so, yeah, the best, the best athletes that I've dealt with, they are, they're the ones that you have to be like, no, man, you got to pump the brakes. Like, (laughs) I don't have to push you. I have to hold you back because if I let you do what you want to do, you're just going to be wrecked all the time. And there's times to be wrecked. I, I, I tell the athletes I work with all the time. I'm like, let me know if you're feeling rough. And nine times out of 10, I'll be like, cool. <laughs> you're supposed to feel like that. Go and ride your bike. Oh my and God. The one out of 10 that I go, okay, fine. Yep. Sounds good. <laughs> uh, let's, let's switch her up. But again, it's that part where, yeah, when you're doing the short intense stuff, yeah. you have to be hundred percent there. You have to be able to hit 95% of what you're capable of to get anything out of it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, whereas on the endurance side, this is, and this has been actually an interesting discussion that I've had with most of the athletes I work with is, okay, we're doing long endurance stuff or we're doing um, threshold work. Uh, so the, kind of that, that place that's just really uncomfortable. And Hold on, can I level, say one thing on that for anybody tuning in that doesn't understand threshold work, what Jenny's basically saying is you're going to be ready to puke and vomit or puke and crap yourself at the same time. Um, and you've got to maintain that by being comfortable. That's threshold work, correct? Yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> it, it's it's that place where your your breath starts being uncomfortable. The way I describe it to some people is you remember in gym class when you had to do the 12 minute run and go as hard as you could over that period of time? <laughs> right around there. Oh um, my God. But we, we live in a world where we get so much feedback from power meters. So we're really lucky in cycling that every pedal stroke that anyone ever takes they upload a file and I can see it afterwards. You can decide whether that's lucky or not. Um, <laughs> but where, where that, that leads us is sometimes I'm like, I actually don't care what the output says. I just need you to go through the process. Yeah. Um, and so that's the part where that, that is, and that's mental, right? Like people are looking down, they're like, well, I feel like crap. This mm-hmm. thing says, says I'm not going very well, but you still want me to go out and just go through the process. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and yes. then say nothing after you drop the mic and you walk away right <laughs> yeah. like cool or the times there's times I get texts that are like I don't know if I can do this and you're like do I answer <laughs> good luck mm-hmm. yeah there you go. and it's funny you say that too because you know there's two things that resonate with me there number one if you look at it in cycling and I, again I'm no expert but I've had the fortunate privilege I should say to work with a couple of them in a basic sense where it's understanding like those sprinting moments. It's funny, like it's mental, but those sprinting moments in a race are usually either what come at, you know, a midpoint of the race where you're already probably decently fatigued and you have to climb a mountain of sort or at the end where you have to sprint. And in both scenarios, it's like, man, like you're mentally and physically exhausted this is the toughest part to do it. So the first thing that you look at there is that it's actually a really weird one. If you want to compare it to like, a, I mean, I guess maybe something decently close is soccer where you have to almost keep an interval the entire game, especially if you're a midfielder, but even there you have more time to recover than people think. And even looking at the training side, which kind of goes into a second point, what you're saying, you know, we have all this technology now and I'm a big tech fan of it. Like I, I like the whole, you know, HRV meters and all that kind of stuff that you can measure things in the sleep and the aura ring and so on and so forth. Like it's great. But what we have to realize a lot of the time is that sometimes like that old school mentality of train when you're tired for like a very brief, brief period of time. I hope anybody listening to this doesn't take it out of context, but sometimes that's the most realistic way of understanding that you're going to face a point of that in your competition, you know, where, you're going to be riding up, for example, the mountain, you're going to go down it and then you're going to have to go right back up it two minutes later. And it's tough. Like that alone is a battle in itself. Right. So I think there's actually more merit than we look at of understanding the idea behind maybe sometimes having those off days where you do just want to bag it and you really want to kind of train through a bit of a fragile mind and a fragile body. Um, again, keeping it in context, making sure it's measured. I think it's beneficial at some points to do that. Um, I think there's a lot of validity to it, to be honest with you. So absolutely, absolutely. And I think especially in cycling, because we do have uh, these moments where you're where you're tired. And, and to me, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a professional hockey player, but I can imagine that it's those similar days where like, you you play 85 games a year plus, Mm -hmm. right? There's days that you're like, 
great. I get to get on the ice again. Can't <laughs> wait. Like, um, and the way I've described it to people is, you know, being a professional athlete is not different than being any other, having any other kind of job. There's days that you love your job yep. and you're really good at it. And there's days that you get out of bed and you have a drink, like, yeah, get your coffee and you have to psych yourself up that today is going to be one of those days and you still have to do whatever you can do, but it's not going to be pretty. It's funny you say that too, because it's like, you know, we see this all the time. It's almost the athletes that give their sport the respect of it, just quote unquote being a job. And I don't mean to cut anything like short on how amazing sports are, but it's the ones that really look at it like, hey, this is my job. I'm going to treat it that way. And I'm going to give it that respect. They're the ones that are the most successful I find because it's like they have that ability to kind of turn it off where all these other people who want to have the, you know, Michael Jordan mentality or the Kobe mindset, it's like, they never turned it off. And it's like, yeah, but you kind of have to look at the sustainability of that. Right. I mean, we know Michael Jordan had to take breaks in his career. We know Kobe Bryant ended his career because of an overuse injury. Right. So it's like, it's these little things that are funny to, to recognize with that, especially in the sport of cycling where it's so lifestyle based, right? Like, I don't know any other sport that you, other than of course running, I'm sure, but more I've seen it in cycling because I use cycling as a transition sport when I actually got out of soccer. And what attracted me was that I was riding with groups of people to go have a coffee and then riding back home. And it's like, this is awesome. You know what I mean? And it's hard to put down, So having that ability, I think, of just knowing not to turn it off, but that it's part of a, I guess, a a job, if you will, really makes it that much more easy for an individual to be successful with it. Yeah. I, and I, and I would refer to that as professionalism, right? Like, and, and I, I talk to young athletes and say that, you know, like you don't have to be being paid money to be professional with the way that you approach things. Um, and yes, and to, to your second point about cycling being a, a lifestyle, like, yeah, it's, it's a lifelong, it's, it's a lifelong activity. And, and for me, actually COVID has been really great because I started riding my bike again awesome. and, you know, it's one of those things I, I, I live it day in, day out. I breathe it and I'd forgotten all the joys of being out on the road and all else aside, I think it's so interesting when we're talking to young athletes about trying to maintain balance and, and how do you deal with stress? And I'm like, <laughs> at some level, guys, like what you're doing can't be inherently stressful when you're on your bike. Like there's got to be some joy that comes from that because the rest of us, by the time you get like jobs, we pay money to be able to go ride our bikes for five, five hours. In fact, people do. They pay a lot of money to go ride yeah. their bikes for five hours a day. And, and, and again, it's not to diminish um, yep. what professionals are doing, but I do think there's a certain element of you have to understand that there is a love for what you are doing. And cycling is really unique that way, that it's something you can do until you're into your hundreds. Like it's, it's, it's unreal. True. Yeah. And it's like long-term health benefits and all that amazingness that comes from it. It's, it's such, it's integral. Like it's, it's, I love it. Um, but let's transition into that then, because I want to touch on two more topics before we wrap up. Let's talk about the next gen coaching um, development. You have the amazing opportunity to shape young people, people who are getting into it, you know, be a mentor type to them. Tell us a bit about that. Like share, share that experience with us. Absolutely. I, I mean, coaching is pretty amazing. I, I would say I'm lucky enough to have my dream job, which is pretty awesome to, to work with development athletes. So for, in my world, that's athletes about 17 to 23 for them, for the most part. Um, and and I like to see it as I use cycling to help people become better people. So um, I feel like sport is really good at giving us all sorts of skills that we can use outside. And, and so for me, that's why I love coaching is that it helps pe- me help people discover their best selves through a sport. Um, and yeah, I, it's been three and a half years now, but even before that, I, I had a women, a development women's team. So same kind of age group. And it really is just a really exciting time in, in life. Uh, I, I think at times it's some of the most challenging, uh, when I think back to being 18 is that part where your life's just changing. You're going from being a kid with all of these things really structured in your life to getting to make all your own decisions. And it's really overwhelming and uh having having a bit of a path to follow through sport really helped me 
and so trying to give other people some of some of that guidance and at the same time as much as I'm like yeah it's a bit of a cop out to see what you're capable of it's also a time where people do have really really like I don't know what the boundaries are so let's give it a go um so I, I do think it's a really great time in life and you get to see people discover what they're capable of both in sport and and in life uh, and you know like there's there's the joys of I was able to to watch uh, and be a part of a team get silver at the Pan American Games and that was really cool and then a couple of weeks ago I got a message from an athlete that I'd worked with who was like hey by the way I got into university and the program that I wanted to I just thought you'd like to know awesome. so it's like a really cool balance to just see these people people grow up and I think about the coaches that influenced me along the way and they're still with me every day even if I don't talk to them yeah. so that's pretty cool and it's interesting you say that too right because I think this is something that a lot of people need to understand especially any coaches that are tuning in because you got a fair amount of those but like you know everybody says that sport translates over to life and it does but it takes a skilled coach to make that translation and that transition and you know, it's funny, like there's a lot of stuff we do right now with athletes in regards to post career and identity transition and so on. And it's tough. Like I'll never forget the day that I decided to put my soccer career, not on hold, but forever finish it. And it was, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was scary. It was definitely something though, that it's like, whoa, I'm really going into some uncharted waters here. Can I even do like, am I even supposed to do this? And it's funny because the last individual that I worked with before I finished playing and, and doing my thing, it was, you know, a father and son team of coaches who I still today keep in contact with because they're just awesome. Two, two Russian individuals that had an old school mentality of training and, you know, hardcore training and so on. But those two individuals really helped me understand that, hey, everything we just learned here in the field it's applicable in life. Everything that you've been doing here in regards to your diligence and your discipline. I, like I, I'll never forget the first question I asked the day, pretty much the day after that I stopped playing soccer was, so do I still get up on time and work out? And it's like, yep, you definitely can do that if you want. And it's just a shock, right? It's like, what do you do? So having that coach, that mentor, that's able to instill values within you enough that you keep post-career um, I think it's very, very important to understand that it takes a skilled individual to do that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, finishing your career, for me, it was devastating to, to stop racing. And part of it, and I, I don't know, it's, it's not always obvious, but very few athletes get to leave on their own terms. Most of us get told when we're leaving, right? And, and right. so I think that's, that's that part where if you can help athletes understand the person they are within the athlete that they are so that those two things are growing at the same time because the loss and and the confusion when sport is no longer your kind of guiding light yep. it's it's hard it's really hard yep. um but i think part of part of helping people get there is along the way those those checkpoints those moments where you get injured or something happens and you're like why am i doing this it's the best question and it's so hard to go through, right? You get to this point and you're like, why? Why am I doing this? <laughs> um, and, and I've said to many athletes along the way, well, what happens if you quit? Yeah. And it's like, oh, I don't wanna talk about it. I don't wanna, okay, that's fine. But you know how like when you flip a coin and you're like, okay, uh, I'm gonna go watch TV. If it's heads <laughs> and if it's tails, I'm doing homework, right? And then <laughs> you get it in your heads and you're like, no, I'm gonna, go what yes I'm going to watch TV or it's tails and you're like yeah I'm going to watch TV I just did that for like exactly these are those moments right and they're super important to have those check-ins and to have that support network that you can have those real check-ins with of yeah okay why am I doing this is it because I've always just been good at it because that's not really a great answer to be honest <laughs> it's true no like that's that's so important too to understand with people right like I feel like athletes sometimes write that off a little bit where it's yeah I'm just good at what I do you know, yep. it's like, but man, but what about these 15 years of painstaking X, Y, and Z that you did here? Like that, that has no correlation. Like, are we missing that a little bit or like what's going on? Right. So it's for sure. It's just really understanding that, like how you do one thing is how you do all things. Like, I think that's one of the truest sayings out there, you know? Yeah. 
And and if if you can't if you can't find those pieces, those are the athletes that leave and they're bitter, right? Mm-hmm. And and yeah, there's bad days on a bike, but gosh, I hope I hope that if you are pursuing sport at your highest level, it's because 95% of the time you love what you're doing. Otherwise, yeah, there, there's a bunch of things in life you don't get to do. And if you see that as sacrifice, I think it ends up being a really long journey. It's yeah. being able to embrace and own what you're doing and being like, this is awesome. And there's going to be days that suck. <laughs> funny you say that. Like we say this all the time, this word sacrifice, I feel like it's a glorified, like quote unquote, sexy word in the sports world that everybody want to use. Right. It's like, Oh, I'm so I'm sacrificing this. It's like, are you sacrificing man? Or are you just committing and following through on a commitment that you made to not only yourself, but everybody else that's involved here that you're going to do something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's identity. It's just, this is what I do. You don't have to eat healthy as a pro athlete or any athlete. You do it. That's part of the job description. Like you wouldn't take a job that you said, Hey, like I'm going to be a salesperson, but, um, yeah, I'm not going to do the part of reaching out and I'm not going to do the part of reporting. I'm just going to, uh, I'm just going to talk to people on the phone and it'd be like, well, that's not really the job. Like, you know what I mean? So totally picking and choosing that. I feel like we do so much as athletes sometimes that we got to realize it's not sacrifice commitment. Yeah. And, and that's a big part of my job is trying to explain to people what is necessary and what is expected. And if you can communicate that early on, then hopefully the people that are just kind of like, flapping in the wind and aren't that interested we'll move on sooner so that they don't become those people that are like well I did all of this and I got nothing out of it and you're like did you get nothing out of it <laughs> <laughs> smell the roses absolutely well speaking of nothing out of it the last part that I want to look at then um the concussion being sidelined by a concussion tell us a little bit about that was it a crazy crash like what was that Yeah. um, So I was actually down in California and we were actually riding on an armed forces base, which is kind of crazy. We were doing lead outs. And so what that means is that essentially as the sprinter, you're getting the riders in front of you to use draft to get you up to speed. And then my job was to sprint and we're just, we're just practicing. Um, And we had some new equipment. And so I got dropped off at about 50 kilometers an hour went to accelerate and my pedal let go. So in cycling, our pe- our feet are attached to the pedals. Um, and the purpose of that is so that we can pull up as much as possible. You're getting the most efficient power, uh, pedal stroke, you're getting more power out of it. Um, and when my power and when my cleat let out, um, I essentially, you know, like when divers jump and then they tuck the one leg and they flip forward. <laughs> um, I did that into the, into the pavement at about 50 kilometers an hour um wow so I I still have some scarring on my face it looks it's uh it it comes out in the winter when when I'm pale (laughs) blue on my face um but essentially I had road rash on the left side of my face and all four limbs because I just kind of ragdolled um to absorb some of the energy I don't remember the next 45 minutes um apparently I never got knocked out but uh but I would say that I remember coming to, if that makes sense. I was having like a dream and I came to, and apparently it was like uh, somebody snapped a finger. I went from not having any idea, kind of being like really spacey to crying and being pretty upset. So um, as I said, at the time, we didn't really know what concussions were. I I had an MRI um, and some, uh, some x-rays at the hospital. I'd separated my shoulder uh, and I didn't have a brain bleed. And so I left the hospital and I said, I don't have a brain bleed <laughs> and uh, oh a friend goodness. say, but that doesn't mean you don't have a concussion. But at the time, I mean, I, I was an adult, I was 29 yeah. years old, but I was not making good decisions. I, I had an injured brain. I could not make decisions. Um, I was allowed back on my bike the next day, which blows my mind. Oh my God. Um, two days later, I went out for a training ride, turned around because my shoulder was bugging me. Um, was talking to my parents they live in calgary my mom came down to take care of me because i think they could hear that i wasn't right on the phone i was crying every night i was Shoot. i was out of sorts um my mom picked me up took me to a hotel I slept kind of like 14 hours a day wow. but uh two weeks later tried to get on a start line um which again blows my mind that that <laughs> i was allowed to do that but we didn't know any better at the time yeah. um 
And Sorry, so think this was 2011. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it wasn't my first concussion to when, when asked, have you ever had one before? I said, well, yeah, <laughs> bike racer. Right. Um, yeah. And then it was, it was a, just a joint effort and poor management, to be honest. I, I think I got lost on the time trial. Like I finished it. And then by the time I came back, which is just an individual event, it was only a 15 minute race, but by the time I came back, everybody was gone, which leads me to believe I got lost somewhere between the end and the start again. Uh, wow. Told our our uh, team swinger, so our, our massage therapist, that I could not start the next day. She said, are you sure? Do you want to just try? <laughs> like, you mm. <laughs> Right, right, what's, what's 10 years, right? Um, I, I had a great coach at the time, she wasn't there. Um, I was supposed to go to Europe two days later which was part of it. Um, and she was fantastic in that she didn't tell me I couldn't go. She made me tell her I couldn't go, which I, I think was pretty like bang on. Um, so I went home, I saw a doctor. They went me through, put me through a scat test. I was by myself though, just to, and, uh, wow. and she says to me, yeah, normally with this, I wouldn't let uh, somebody ride a bike for more than 10 minutes. I've been training quasi normally. Oh my um, God left I heard nope she said normally she didn't say for me to stop riding yeah uh so I kept riding um and eventually two or three weeks later I went for a five-hour ride with some friends and came home was a mess uh and couldn't get out of bed for a month uh went for a ride with a, a doctor friend we looked down at my because we have like our our garments that have everything yeah. right is your heart rate really 200 right now I'm like yeah just talking like this he's like okay I'm gonna drive you home <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah so nine months later a friend of mine gave me a job as a receptionist three out you know three hour um if I was in for three hours trying to do things like alphabetize things I'd end up in tears it uh it was two years before I could really look at a computer screen for any amount of time um, so it was, it was, it was a big transition, um, but it brought me to where I am. So it was a tough two years. I did not, looking back on it, my husband's a pretty, like, he's a stand-up dude, champ, big champ having to deal with me through all of that. Um, probably good that we were married. <laughs> oh my but, gosh. But yeah, and you know, it leads you, it leads you to where you are and makes me better at what I am now. Um, cause you don't have to tell me to tell it, to take it seriously, but but yeah, it was, it was, it was an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> More than an adventure. Um, so I'm going to say it's safe to assume that was what ended the career. Yeah. Yeah. I tried to get, I, I was convinced I could come back for about a year. Um, I had a friend tell me at the time that she was like, you're, you're being, you're being ridiculous. Like your brain's more important than that. Um, I was still not kind of thinking clear enough and went away and said, you don't understand this and that. Um, about a year later, I was at a training camp, um, as like a mentor and got the opportunity, like got to rip down a downhill, which was always my favorite thing to do. And I did it and I got to the bottom and I said, huh, I can't bike race anymore. And for me, the big thing was I wasn't scared and and it was like that for something about that for me was knowing that I wasn't scared, putting myself in a level of danger yeah. that should have made me scared um, was I couldn't race again because I put myself in bad situations um, and probably hit my head again. So that that was really the defining moment for me. And, um, and moved over to coaching. Is, well, I was going to say that's. So let's, there's a couple of things there. I think the first thing we got to realize, and this is for any athlete tuning in in any sport, we do this thing as athletes called putting on a brave face. And really one of the weakest things we could do is put on that brave face because it actually hurts us in the long run. And yep. what we have to realize is a lot of the times too, like we see that in every sport too, where someone just wants to push through. And again, like I wrote it down here before, but this whole idea of no pain I can only imagine that that belief is something that came in, kicked in and forced you to kind of get back on that bike, which is insane to think about. Thankfully though, you had that meter of saying to yourself, Hey, I'm, I'm not scared. There's something wrong here because I could potentially 
not to get it too extreme, but you could, you know, brain damage and kill yourself. Right. So it's like, you're at this extreme point in your life where you had the more bravery to say, I'm going to step back and become a coach. I think that's amazing now because you have an even bigger impact on people where you're able to help shape these young kids and, and young individuals, I should say, to help them understand that. And that in itself, I'm sure is something that carries into your coaching practices. Yeah, no, I, I, I had a number of really great coaches growing up. And, and to me, when I look at them, they, they have created, they've been systems builders. So yeah. all of those coaches that I came through, it's not, I'm not their only person who's become a coach there's like a whole like generation <laughs> of athletes who worked with those coaches and said, yeah, you know what? I want to give back to. And so I think it's a hallmark of a pretty awesome coach. And, and I also believe that I had a really strong support network that could help guide me, but that I was stubborn. And until I came to that conclusion myself, it wasn't going to happen. So it does help me understand many of the athletes that I work with. <laughs> well, bless it. Honestly, like blessing in disguise kind of thing. Like I know it's, it's a little drastic to say, but think about it. Like you can save someone's life by doing that, you know? And like, people don't realize that the little things of realizing a concussion, like we've had multiple athletes that we've had to help understand like, Hey, you know, if it's not getting better, it's probably not getting better. Right. And it's like proofs in the pudding kind of thing where you got to realize that it's, it's a hard one to accept too sometimes with the whole concussion side of it, because you look at it, it's like, well, it's a headache that's going to go away. And as athletes, we know it. Sometimes you train hard. Headaches are sometimes, I'm not going to say they're normal, not frequently, but, you know, it's something that it's like, well, I just went and squatted X amount of pounds or I just ran X amount of distance, a little headache. Let me just try and crack my neck here and we'll be good to go. But, you know, it's something that's easy to, to write off in that sense when in reality it can be the most harmful thing. Like brain health is something that we're noticing is just starting to really get the credit that it deserves in sport, you know, we've talked about it before with concussions and now it's like, well, we got to eat these foods and processing and all these cognitive trainings out there. And it's just so important to realize that if you're going to work on your psychology at all, or even the basics of your sport, you've got to pay attention to brain health. Like it's, it's a one-on-one, it makes everything move for you. And it's the one reason why you're literally breathing and sitting there right now. Right. So it's like, it's just so important and, and crucial that you say that because I think that's an beyond an interesting story for people to realize, but more importantly, it's something that, you know, this lingered for how long, a year and a half, you said two years. Yeah. A couple of years. Yeah. Right. So it's like, it's not a one and done kind of fix it kind of thing. It's let's take our time with this and really explore it the way we need to, you know? Yeah. And when I, when I, the, the athlete, I've worked with a number of athletes with concussions and one of the challenges is I think, uh, the number of athletes that I've talked to that are like, well, I don't know, like, maybe I'm making it up. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, you're not making it up. Uh, well, what, maybe if I just push, like, I'll just try this to try to like, see how it is yeah. <laughs> and trying to like get to that point. You're like, okay, so you broke your ankle. Okay. You broke your ankle. The doctor told you six weeks, but you're like, well, at three, I feel okay. So why don't I just run on it and see how she goes? Does yeah. that sound like a good idea to you? And they were like, no, that's dumb. They're like, yes, that's what I'm saying. But I think it, and, and it's good for athletes and coaches and anybody out there in the sport network of an athlete who, who may have hit their head and dealing with a concussion is just to remember that it is actually an injury to your brain. And that is your decision-making center. So I think in some ways we are when we are dealing with young athletes, you're, you're dealing with your 12, 13 year olds that get concussions. You're like, okay, well, mom's gonna keep making all the decisions for them, it's okay. In a lot of ways, when you're dealing with athletes that are in their mid twenties, it's almost worse yeah. because they don't have someone taking care of them anymore. Mm -hmm. And if you try to step into that role, often they are not super impressed by that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, it's a double-edged uh, head sword right there, right? Yeah, so it's just something to be aware of. And, and I think the big, the biggest one when I work with athletes, when people are still dealing with concussion problems is I just don't feel right. Yeah. It's not necessarily a headache or, you know, like vision or hearing it's, I just don't feel right. And then people don't trust that. Right. Yeah. And for me, I think the big thing, and I say this to athletes often is you might see yourself as lazy and that's like the way that you frame things, but you're not or else you wouldn't be here. So 
framing it as, oh, I'm, I'm using this as an excuse so I don't have to go do the sport that I love. <laughs> if there's any part of you that's like, oh, I don't feel quite right, trust that. You don't need to push it. <laughs> well, you know what? It's interesting that you say that too because there's just so many different individuals that look at sport that way and that look at it in a sense where it's like, like the, the whole decision-making part you're bang on where I think some people let mom and dad make too many decisions sometimes, but even when they are older, yeah, like everybody wants to be able to say, well, I can do it. I'm fine. When in reality, if you look at some of these amazing athletes, some of these high performing, achieving athletes, they surround themselves with the team for a reason. Right. And it's like a lot of the time, it's funny. If you have a good team, all you're doing is picking up on one another's, you know, shortcomings in that sense where you yeah. can really see it, where it's like, okay, well, did we do the right protocol here? And it's like, yeah, we did here. We did here. And it's like, well, what are we missing then? And then, you know, maybe the nutritionist pipes up and says something. It's like, it's just always covering for one another's blind spots. And I think a lot of athletes need to realize that at the top level, that's how this works, right? It's like someone, there's a team there that's literally always monitoring decision-making and reasons and how you're doing things, you know? So it's just interesting to see and hear from, more so like a, a, a lower level of things in regards to the development process and so on. And we think that because athletes are not there yet, we can't start treating them that way. And it's like, no, 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 you can't. It's you've got a family doctor. You can have access to of X, Y, and Z there. You can have a mental coach or physical coach. And you use that as a team instead of letting yourself work in silo, you know? Yep, absolutely. And just taking ownership of that too. I think too many athletes just wait for it to come to them. But if you can take ownership, if you can be proactive to get what you know, what you need and know that you're in control of your career, that will take you a long way. Um, no one cares as much about you as you do. So yeah. <laughs> go Absolutely. for it. Absolutely. Well, anyways, Jenny, this has been awesome. Um, we're definitely going to be keeping in touch with this. I'm, I'm interested to know how this whole season pans out with everything going on. And we'll definitely make sure to have you back on here to share some more war stories that you have. I think it's super interesting on the side of just, you know, concussions and whatnot too. Um, that's something I definitely want to get you back on here to talk about. Cause I think there's a lot of value up to offer, but Jenny, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show. Um, and we'll definitely make sure to, to keep in touch with you to have you back on. Anytime, Matt. Thanks for having me. Awesome.